Romans 3:21 through 26 says, "But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of Christ. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, uh, my name is Eric, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to see all of you here on what is this third uh, installment or third day, third Sunday of our series called Simple Ingredients. Uh, simple Ingredients is Christianity in four different words. And Pastor Steve uh, took us through the first two weeks, and in week one, he talked about creation. And not only about creation, that we are created beings, but what God had in mind with creation. It's significant to know that not only were we created, but we were created with a purpose. We were created with intention. We were created out of a sense of love. It's highly significant. And then last week, Pastor Steve talked about covenant. That after God creates us, he didn't leave us to our own devices but desires a relationship, a covenant with us, to walk with us in relationship through our, through our lives. So today, I want to talk about our third word, which is the word redemption. And I want to lay out for you a hypothetical but very realistic scenario. Out here on Psalm Center Road, Route 91, a young woman was distracted because she was texting while driving, didn't see the car in front of her, and hit the back end of the car in front of her. The car in front of her was occupied by a gentleman who was having a rough day. And so he stopped the car, he got out, and began to scream at this young woman. He got so enraged that he even got to the point of threatening this young woman threatening to harm her. Now by this time there were bystanders and just like any normal road rage incident, you, people start to get out their phones and start to record the incident. And so as he's screaming out of his own rage, he begins to notice that there are people with their phones recording him and the fact that he saw that jars him loose a little bit and sort of comes to, to him, back to himself and realizes what he was doing and what he had become. Now he was remorseful, he was sorry, but it was too late. Someone had already called 911 and the cop was just coming down the road. And so as he's explaining to this cop 
what had happened, he also adds a little commentary explaining why it had happened. He was having a rough week, but he also had just gotten off the phone with the lawyer that represents his brother who had just gotten arrested for a heinous crime. And not only was he dealing with all of the mixed emotions of of being a a brother, uh, feeling responsible for this brother that committed a terrible crime, he also knew the backstory. He also knew why this brother was living the life and had ultimately done what he did. He knew that his brother had been subjected to years of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse by his own father. And that he was not, by and large, the the, the victim of his father because his older brother had stepped in to take take the, the bulk of the pain. His father was a complicated fellow, constantly living under stress from his uh, difficult work environment, and so he took to drinking and didn't know how to deal with his own stress, so it turned out to anger, which ultimately uh, acted itself out on the people that he loved. He was a, a good guy deep down inside, but he was subjected to so much stress and didn't know how to deal with it. He acted out in that way. His work environment was particularly stressful because of his boss, his overbearing boss. He was a hard man and just demanded results even without giving the time, the appropriate time to accomplish those results. And so constantly he was always under threat of this hard boss that was constantly yelling at him and even on a weekly basis threatening to fire him. This boss, well, he was a pretty good fellow too at one point, but he had been dealing with, for years, with PTSD and didn't know it after storming the beaches of Normandy in World War II. Now, this story can go on and on and on and on, right? This thing that we Christians talk about called sin, it has a biography. It has a backstory. In fact, there is such an an interconnectedness in this, this highly complex, interwoven relationship between sin and the people that commit it, that oftentimes we don't know where sin starts or where it ends. And because it is so complicated, and because it is such a vast network of wrongdoing, of, of, of harm upon harm upon harm, we Christians... We develop language that goes far beyond just a personal uh, heart, uh, a personal sort of event of wrongdoing or act of, of wrongdoing or harm towards another person. And when we talk about sin, a lot of times we automatically go to this, what, what we have done personally, the, the sins that, that we have committed that we need to make amends for somehow. But the Christian story speaks to something bigger than that. That sin really is this pervasive and universal force that has left this world corrupted and that at one point in time or the other, we will all fall victim to it. And as much as we will all fall victim to it, we also then become a part of the problem, contributors to the corruptedness and the brokenness of this world. I was watching a comedy show recently, and 
they were going through the audience and showing uh, baby pictures of famous people. And of course, the crowd was like, oh, and they showed the baby picture, and then they kind of gave a chuckle and a laugh when, when they announced who the, the famous person was from the baby picture. And then they showed a baby picture. It looked like an old photograph, but, it, you know, they, they were, of course, it was a baby, so they're, oh. And then the comedian said, well, that's Hitler. <laughs> and the comedian made the point that we don't all start off as Hitler. <laughs> And when we look at the, 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 the purity and the, the, the precious nature of a baby, of a child, we think, wow, how wholesome, how pure, how innocent. And yet something happens along the way, doesn't it? That soon enough, living in this corrupted world leaves us broken, leaves us corrupted, and then somehow leads us into being a part of the problem. This idea of sin is universal. And when we look at the, 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 the problems of the world, even those that are in faraway places, it's so tempting for us to think about how that pertains to those people's decisions and that, that scenario and whatever was going wrong in that country and yet we don't consider how the world might be interconnected to it. I want to show you a picture. This is the collapse of a giant building in Bangladesh. This is the Savar building. And it was a giant sweatshop. It was a giant sweatshop. And there were thousands upon thousands of people that were injured. Can you imagine thousands and thousands of people working in this building? Uh, thousands were injured and over a thousand lost their lives in the collapse of this building. Now there were a lot of uh, wrong decisions in the midst of the collapse of this building. They had noticed some cracks in the, in the structure just the day before, but the uh, managers were under a harsh timeline and they told the workers to get back to work and do everything. Um, this took the world stage, this, uh, the world took notice of this because uh, many of the textiles and, and, and products that were manufactured in this sweatshop end up in department stores that all of you are familiar with. And while we would never say that we are at fault or at blame or that we contribute to, to what happened, this tragedy that happened in Bangladesh, we have to wonder the fact that we are buying, buying products from this place that is then getting products from this place, there is a little bit of a connection there, isn't it? Christians over the years developed language for this universality of, of sin and the need for grace and the need for mercy. In fact, um, in the Latin, there was this common refrain that was that was repeated corporately amongst the people um, in, um, in, in worship called Kyrie eleison. Kyrie eleison means Lord have mercy. I happened to pray this prayer on Thursday night before the Browns game. <laughs> and the Lord heareth my prayer. 
Lord, have mercy. Uh, or in many contexts, Lord, have mercy on us. 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 That to confess our sins is to be done so together. To realize that we are all in this boat together. We all stand in the same situation. We all are interconnected with this pervasive brokenness in sin in the world. So in Romans chapter three that was just read for you, uh, the leader, Paul, of the early church, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome and there's uh, kind of a mixed bag of people in this church in Rome. And so he kind of sets out to, to set the stage and a, and a framework and understanding for how it all works. And he says, for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this was an important message for the people of that day because as much as it was made up of people from Rome, uh, Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, it was also made up of Jews that had been spread out throughout the area, Jewish Christians. And the Christian faith started out as really just a sect of Judaism. It was sort of a, a different form of Judaism because all of the early believers were Jewish. They just happened to believe Jesus was the Messiah and was, were following Jesus. And so not only did they follow Jesus, they just kept all the same Jewish rites and rituals and how they practiced their faith. It was all like that. And they didn't know anything different. But when they began to welcome the Gentiles, the outsiders, that didn't share those same religious practices, they ended up with a conflict. And many of them thought, well, that's, everyone's welcome to come and be a Christian, but first you have to become Jewish before you become a Christian. And so it created this discord between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And many of the Jewish Christians particularly um, believed that they had a name right, that they were exceptional in, in some way because they were God's chosen people that God had chosen to set forth a covenant with in the, the beginning. And so Paul sets out to remind them that there is no exception here. There is no VIP status. There is no person that enters in with any sort of favoritism. We're all in the same boat. There is no distinction between all of you for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You notice that when we talk about the story of Christianity, we're not talking necessarily about our story, we're talking about humanity's story. We're, we're talking about one God, one true God, and, and, and God's relationship with all of, of creation. That there is a universal scope when it comes to what we believe and how we interact with God. But there are times when people of faith, and we do this a lot too, we develop a theology or a framework of belief that's built around our particular worldview. 
And we think to ourselves, but if I'm going through this sort of thing, and if this is the way I understand it, then that's how it is all across the world for, for every person. And that's what it was for the early Jewish followers that, that were trying to reconcile what they've always known about a relationship with God and how that in, is incorporated with, with other people. What they developed is something I call a theology of privilege, a theology of privilege. They found themselves or believed that they had a, a, a status of privilege in some form or fashion. Now, uh, the Jewish people in the first century weren't very privileged. I mean, they were occupied by the Roman Empire and, and all of that. But in a religious sense, in a religious sense, they were the chosen race, the chosen people. They were a people of privilege. And they began to build their framework of understanding of who God is and who they are off of that. And it's something that we typically do here in the West and particularly in America is that we build, begin out of our own worldview to build a framework of belief and, and thought and kind of go from there. Um, I spent some time in the country of Haiti. I was a missionary and teacher for three years. It was kind of interesting spending my time there in Haiti. I began uh, not only in the midst of teaching and, and, and sort of imparting some of the things that I've learned through uh, you know, an education system and all of that, um, I realized very early on that there was something about the people in Haiti that they understood something about life and even about God that I, as a privileged person, didn't really understand. I didn't really, really get it. And the funny thing is that even though I went down there to be the teacher and to be the missionary, I came away from that experience having been challenged and shaped and formed by the people that I was ministering to and, and, and walking alongside with in, in their daily life. And after my time in Haiti, uh, I decided to go to seminary and pursue my studies. And I was also a youth pastor in one of the wealthiest areas of Cleveland. And I began working with these kids, and it was kind of an interesting observation. Very early on, I was confronted with a lot of teenage issues, would you say, sadly, common American teenage issues. Teen suicide, bipolar disorder, depression, cutting there was a pervasive sadness, sort of an undercurrent of sadness that I observed amongst these very privileged young people. And I couldn't, I was shocked by the irony that in working with young people in Haiti, confronted with tragedy, and I saw it all, natural disasters, murders, riots, Confronted with the tragedies of this world, the people in Haiti were by and large happy. There was a pervasive joy that I experienced among people amidst all of their hardships. And here I am coming to a very privileged situation amongst uh, uh, families and, 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 and young people that have so much given to them and there was this pervasive sadness. And in that moment, as I was reflecting on this, I believe that God spoke to me and challenged me with the question, what does it really mean to be poor? What does it really mean 
to be poor. And as much as we can build a, a, a theology around our specific worldview and situation, there's something that the people that don't have what we have, there's something that they understand far greater than we can understand. And they are aware of the reality of life and faith in a way that, as privileged people, is just concealed from us. This is why we read in Romans chapter three that it, ma- it doesn't matter if you come from a p- privileged situation. It doesn't matter if you're more educated than the next person. It doesn't matter if you come with a lot of money in your pocket. It doesn't matter if you are in the upper crust of society. It doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people are a part of the problems of this world. And this gospel story, this, this, this thing that Jesus does, matters to, to the privileged person as much as it does for the greatest of sinners. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And the Christian witness speaks to all people. It's relevant, it's meaningful, it cuts to the heart of all people. In the, um, in the Jewish context, the ancient Jewish context, their way to deal with sin or their understanding of how to deal with sin and, and the problems of the world was uh, something that they understood very well, which was sacrifice. And once a year, they would partake in a ceremony and a ritual of sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And many of you might know that our Jewish friends and neighbors celebrated this day just last Wednesday, the, day, uh, the holiday of Yom Kippur. It is the Day of Atonement. And every single year, and I won't go into the details because you can read about it in Leviticus 16 if you uh, like that kind of thing. And you could read, um, and, and um, it would be a, a system of sacrifices that they would offer up to make amends, to say they're sorry. Once a year, for all the sins that have sort of collected amongst the community. And keep in mind, this is also a communal Ritual, a communal exercise. It is the sins of the people. There was an understanding that it was a a shared experience and and shared issue. And they would take this this animal and they they would sacrifice this animal on something they called the mercy seat. And it really wasn't a seat. It was actually more of a lid. It was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which when they didn't have a home, they carried God in this big box called the Ark of the Covenant and had this elaborate lid. And it was, it was believed that that was where God's presence was. Right? So that they, they carried God with God was with them. They carried God with them. And then when they had a permanent home, this Ark went into the temple, the innermost part of the temple called the Holy of Holies and that's where they would do this ritual and it's loaded with all kinds of restrictions and rules because it was really, really important. Only certain people could do it. In fact, there was a sacrifice made on behalf of the sacrificer first (laughs) 
make sure that they're okay, and, and then they would offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. So this was the way that they um, sought amends for not only their own personal sins, but the, the sins of the world, the brokenness, the, the shame of the world that existed all around. And yet, here comes Jesus, who dies on the cross. And the Christian witness says that while the people of God were in relationship with God, they entered into this back and forth. And if you can read through all of the Old Testament, it's this back and forth relationship where they're praising God and living in God's presence and enjoying life and suddenly they sin and they have to make amends and God's not happy with them but drives them towards repentance and they repent and they enjoy God's presence again and they celebrate together as God's people and then they mess up again and God says he's not happy with them and they, uh, they, they need to repent and, and turn back to God and then they do that and, then, and it's just this constant cycle. Can you, be, can you imagine being in a circular relationship like that? Some of you might be. It's exhausting. And so what God does is he sends Jesus to live a life as we would live, but to sacrifice himself, to give up himself as that sacrificial lamb, that we wouldn't have to constantly be in this circular relationship with God, but that God would take the initiative to reconcile the two parties together and that we could be redeemed and our relationship with God could ultimately be redeemed. In verse 24, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it says, they, meaning all, are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God, watch this, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. One of my um, faith heroes, his name is um, John Wesley, who's an 18th century theologian. He, he talks about something that we actually sang about when we sang about how your love awakens me. He, he developed this idea that really when people come to faith, that's not really the beginning. That's actually the, the culmination of a lifetime of God pursuing us with his relentless love. And that his grace goes before, and he developed this word called prevenient grace. It is the grace that goes before. That God, knowing that we are born into this world of corruption and that eventually we're gonna be a part of the problem, God's grace goes out before and, that, and then suddenly we come to a point, those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, awaken to the fact that God's been there the whole time chasing us, pursuing us with his relentless love. The grace that goes before. And it's through this grace then 
that we don't remain the same that, that we have been. God not only redeems our relationship, but redeems us, and Jesus describes it as being a new creation. As much as we were created with love and with purpose, we have fallen short of that. Redemption in Jesus means that we are now created into something new, into a new creation. So why? Why would God do this? Well, Paul explains that as well. He says here in verse uh, 25, he says, he did it, and this won't be on the screen, so he did it, he did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we are left not only with this, this invitation to have faith in Jesus who was the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the world, not only do we have this open-ended invitation, but if we're ever kind of wondering what kind of God we are entering into relationship with, if we're ever wondering that, okay God, if, if God's inviting me into this relationship, what am I getting myself into? If we're ever wondering if God's gonna uphold his end of the bargain, if he is going to be uh, faithful to us in relationship as a spouse would be on their wedding day, if God is going to be the faithful one, if we're ever wondering about that, then we consider the cross. We consider the redemption, the gift of salvation that is offered in Jesus. That to make things right, for reconciliation to happen between God and God's people, that we can always count on him because he took the first step. He initiated not only a relationship with us, but our own redemption so that relationship could be made whole again. What kind of God would do this. Now keep in mind, in the ancient world and all throughout the Bible, it's written by people in a worldview where there was no such thing as atheism. Everyone believed in some kind of God or, or deity. The question, the operative question for the biblical writers was what kind of God would do this? What kind of God would create? What kind of God would offer relationship? What kind of God would we be interacting with in relationship? And here we stand on the witness of a story called the gospel that says and signals to us that it's the kind of God that loves us so much that despite the sins of the world, would put himself out there first, would send his own son as a sacrifice so 
that our relationship could be made whole again. What kind of God would do that? If we're ever wondering, if we're ever questioning what kind of God would ever do that, and I know that we have those kinds of questions, but I wanna, ask, I, I wanna leave this question, what kind of God would send his own son? Despite everything, and try not to think about it in your own terms, you say, well, you know, I haven't done all that, I haven't done a whole lot bad, you know. Think, consider the sins of the world. Think about all of the sins of humanity, the brokenness and the shame of this world, what kind of God, what kind of God would send his own son to to die as a sacrifice just so that relationship could be made whole again? And so we arrive at that famous verse, and many of you know it, John 3, 16. Didn't see it at the Browns game. Every once in a while there's a sporting event that has a sign. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What kind of God would do that? I teach a class on the Bible, and one of the things that I often say is that the Old Testament gets a bad rap. <laughs> because when people ask what kind of God, you know, they read the Old Testament and they see some things that are difficult to reconcile. There's a lot of violence and barbarism and um, some things that are difficult to kind of make, make sense of. Um, but there's... There's this story, I think, that, that represents what's all happening in, in all of these different cases in the Old Testament when it comes to looking at the relationship between God and humanity. And it, it's found in the book of Joel. And it, we find ourselves in the book of Joel. Uh, Joel is a prophet, and he's speaking to the people. And we're caught in this endless cycle, right? And the, the people have sinned against God. They, they have neglected um, the least of these in their community. Um, there's corruption. There's, there's violence. There's all those things. And God is upset with the fact that they just keep circling back to the same thing. And so the first couple of um, chapters, you have this sort of description of, of calamity that is sure to come because of their sins. That because they're like this, that God's just, just gonna, all this stuff is gonna, is gonna happen to them. But then there's this sort of turning point in, in the book of Joel that I wanna read for you because I just think it's just so, it's so powerful and it captures, it captures um, the heart of God. Joel 2 verses 12 to 13. Joel chapter two, verses 12 to 13. It starts with the word yet. Something's been happening in the story, right? (laughs) Yet, even now. Yet, even now, says the Lord. Hang with me for a second on those, those small words. Yet, even now. Consider that God says these three words, yet, even now, to each person on this planet. 
no matter what they have done, no matter who they are, no matter what kind of harm that they have caused, no matter what treachery they have committed on this earth, no matter how many people that they have or families that they have ruined, no matter what they have done or who that they are, these three words pertain to all of them. Yet, even now, even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents from punishing. Listen, some of you might be feeling as though you are outside of God's redemptive reach. You think about all that you've done and all that you're ashamed of. You can't get out of your mind the harm that you've caused. The past continues to haunt you. And some of you might be coming here as a last result. That you don't know how to make amends for the things that you've done and the, pe- the person that, you, that you've been. And that somehow you can make yourself a good person again. And yet God doesn't wait for you to become a good person before he extends these words to you. He doesn't wait till you can get your life right again. He doesn't wait until you can pretty yourself up and become the person that you wish you could be. He doesn't wait for that. Because what God knows and what we've all come to terms with is that on our own, we can't do it. As hard as we try, and even if we make some progress, we find ourselves taking steps back again. Most of us have come to this place where we realize that we can't be our own solution. But even if you've come here hoping just to be a good person again, you're still in the right place. Because here in this moment, we have the opportunity to go before God and to return to him. And some of you might be saying, well, I, I, you know, I've been a Christian my, my whole life. There's really not sort of a sense of returning. But all of us have fallen short of the, the glory of God. All of us were created. And while we've fallen short of our faithfulness and relationship to God, he is calling us back to return to him. And so, I wonder if we could take a time here this morning where we can hear God's invitation to us and we can respond. Now, sometimes people kind of scoff at, you know, coming forward and, and presenting ourselves, but I have to tell you, there's something about our own posture that says something, and, 
and the act of, of coming forward and as a way of saying something and making it real rather than sort of like playing it cool on the side. There's something about coming forward. And I don't care who you are, if you've been a Christian a long time or if you've just been here kind of learning about things and discovering things for the first time. It doesn't matter because this invitation is for all of you. So I'm gonna ask all of us to stand and we're gonna sing a little bit. And if you feel like God is tugging on your heart, doesn't mean you've got it all figured out, but if you feel like God is tugging on your heart to respond to this invitation, to be redeemed in relationship with God, then come forward. Come forward to pray and we'll pray with you. Offer yourself. It's all you have to do. God's grace goes before. It's already here. Let ourselves be awakened to it.
God, we stand offering to you all of our sin, our brokenness, our shame, seeking your redemption. We're so grateful for your love and your grace and your mercy that is a gift. Thank you, Lord. God, I lift up all those around us, our loved ones, our friends, our communities, our world. I pray for all those that do not know you, that they might hear your gospel message the announcement of your love that has been chasing them all along. Help us as a church to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to your message of love for all people and let us um, regularly come before you in humility as we receive your grace. Lord, I lift up those who are particularly asking you questions right now because of the tragedies that they're going through. I particularly lift up those that are stuck in their own uh, sense of, of shame and embarrassment. I lift up those, Lord, who are in need of your uplifting and your encouragement right now. I pray, Lord, healing for those that are ill. I pray for peace in the midst of conflict everywhere. Pray, God, that as you redeem us, that you would redeem this world. Not by our own strength or power, but according to yours. As in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, in light of... Um, folks coming forward here today or whatever might be going in, on in your heart, uh, we're going to have a, a baptism service uh, coming up here uh, November 18th. And so if you have been considering uh, baptism or think that maybe this is something, God's doing something particularly in your heart and life and, and you'd like to uh, come to the waters of baptism to, to ratify what God is doing in your life, I um, invite you to, uh, um, to come and talk to us. There should be forms there on the guest services desk. Um, and uh, you can uh, contact me uh, after the service as well. Uh, and as you're exiting, don't forget that there's the, the boxes. This is a new thing, so we keep mentioning it. Um, the offering boxes and also for you to put your, your connected cards. Uh, so as you go, though, go as a redeemed people. Go as a people knowing that grace has already taken the step in front of you and that God, with his loving arms of salvation, is always there. Go in his name. Amen.